And we're live coming in here, CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm Darren Keister. You're listening to The Green Majority. Stefan Hostetter is also in the studio. And uh, before we get on to the rest of the show, just because I can, it's my show. Happy birthday, Stefan. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have a couple of fun items here today. We, uh, we attempted last week but had a minor technical glitch, uh, and we're unable to speak to Brad Zarnett uh, from the Toronto Suspa- Sustainability Speaker Series, also uh, known by friends and colleagues as the T-Triple-S. Oh. That's kind of a cool name. That yeah. can fit on a T-shirt, I think. Well, I think it sounds really good. Yeah, a triple S. Yeah, you gotta like maybe have a T S and then like a uh, like a, a three at the top. Uh, we'll ask him when we get him on the line if he's yeah. looking for a new logo. Exactly. Uh, we'll be speaking to Brad Zarnett from T Triple S in a moment, uh, and then our main uh, interview this week is with uh, Darcy Higgins. We spoke to uh, Vanessa Ling Yu uh, a while ago from uh, Cater Toronto, who's also part of Food Forward. Uh, today we'll be speaking to, or, or I already have spoken to, and we'll be playing the interview with Darcy Higgins, who's the director and founder of uh, Push Food Forward. Um, they do a number of cool things uh, involving food in the city, uh, and he's going to be telling us uh, a little bit about that, both um, the implications of um, why their organization is necessary in the city of Toronto, but we also get into a little bit of uh, uh, municipal, provincial, and federal politics and the implications of sort of food policy at large uh, as well. Uh, So we'll be doing that. Um, I'm wondering if we're going to be, are we ready to to go to Brad now? All right, so let's uh, let's go to that. Uh, Brad, are you on the line? Yes, right here. Thank you very much for for taking some time to to speak to us today. Um, We got you to come on because you have an event uh, coming up uh, very shortly. It's February the 5th, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, February 5th. Um, Before I start, I wanted to say how much I appreciate the hard work that you guys are doing here at Green Majority. I think it is a fantastic organization and a voice that we desperately need uh, across this country. Well, thank you very kindly. Um, the uh, the event that's coming up uh, is dealing with uh, the uh, CSR or sort of, uh, from the corporate world is is uh, essentially is, is a short form euphemism for um, th- things that uh, company larger companies will do outside uh, theoretically of their of their business model um, to have some sort of uh, responsibility to the to the public to give back um, that's the theory um, but your um, your talk is going to be uh, with a few uh, distinguished guests including uh, Ian McPherson Martin uh, Groskoff uh, and Julie. Desjardins um, is talking a little bit about, um, is this actually something that companies are doing that, that essentially, if, tell me if I'm summarizing this correctly, but you're kind of asking, like, is it actually doing anything? Is it successful or is it just window dressing? Uh, and can companies do better? Um, so I would like you to maybe comment on, on your thoughts on that and then maybe just tell us a little bit more about uh, the event and your guests. Okay, well, thank you. The, the event is going to be uh, a deep discussion with with some very intelligent uh, uh, and highly connected people in the financial industry. Uh, we're going to discuss um, Bay Street and Wall Street and, and why there is this disconnect uh, with the sustainability initiatives that companies are involved with. Uh, sustainability for companies is a tremendous um, differentiator uh, for the way they run their company. Uh, the um, the effectiveness of their operations, the reduction of the waste in their operations, the improved relationships uh, in their supply chain. Uh, and something that's hard to determine immediately is the reduction in the risks throughout their supply chain. Um, and we're seeing all kinds of risks in the economic, uh, in the economy as a whole. Uh, the most recent one is the shock to oil prices. Um, and if you don't have a company that is... Um, working with a strategy of sustainability and corporate social responsibility, you're missing an opportunity to reduce these risks in your supply chain and throughout your operations. 
Um, so the companies that are doing this well are much more agile, much more resilient um, at handling shocks, at reducing risks, and being um, reducing waste and just being more um, profitable. But all of that is not connecting with Bay Street and Wall Street in terms of um, increasing the valuations of these companies. Uh, money managers and analysts, pension fund managers, uh, to a lesser degree, aren't seeing the materiality of CSR initiatives clearly. And we're going to have a discussion about how these two uh, very different uh, pieces of the economic system um, can communicate more effectively. So companies that are showing leadership are finding ways to become more effective at what they do, reduce their risks, becoming more profitable, how they can communicate more effectively with money managers and analysts so those stock valuations rise, forcing others in their sector to say, hey, I want a piece of that. I want to do what they're doing, causing more of a virtuous upward spiral of companies behaving more sustainably. I, I just want to ask you um, one sort of specific question about uh, about this, which actually I'm going to ask you essentially to pitch my audience a little bit, because when we're talking about, you know, we don't talk a lot about finance on the show. We do occasionally have uh, Tim Nash who comes on and, and talk about renewable energy and, and sustainable uh, investing and uh, and clean energy and clean tech and stuff. Uh, but when we're talking about, um, you know, the just the finance world in, in general, I, I, I it's my opinion, and I think you would probably agree that to, that to a large degree, the, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater because there is, uh, especially with environmentally minded folks, folks, um, a lot of cynicism, if not worse, you know, that might be the polite end of uh, to call it cynicism towards the financial sector. And I think there's, uh, I think there's a very good reason for that. Um, but because of that, it tends to be that people uh, who are interested in these issues tend to just either ignore or, or in completely write off even any of these conversations as well, the whole thing's corrupt. So what are we going to do? We just need to find a way around them. Um, but I, I would assume that's not your, your point of view. And so maybe just, uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity here um, to maybe pitch an audience that isn't used to having, or, or used to spending time and in, uh, investing time, having conversations about the finance industry. And, and, you know, while they're maybe not doing great everywhere, and we may have some significant criticisms of, of uh, Bay street and wall street uh, as to why people should be involved in this conversation. Well, I think before you um, um, frame everybody in the financial industry as evil, um, I think what you need to understand is that there's there's a game uh, that we all play called our economic system, and the rules of the game are flawed, uh, horribly flawed, and the people who are working on the financial side are just playing by the rules that are put in front of them. Uh, if they want to keep their job, if they want to excel in their firm, uh, they want to put the skills that they've trained for for the last 5, 10, 20 years to work. Uh, they have to play by the rules, and the rules are <laughs> what they are, and we're trying to uh, work within that system. There's other people who are trying to change the system. There's other people who are trying to um, change the system more uh, intricately from the inside through reporting mechanisms. Um, but think of it this way. If we can uh, unleash uh, the markets, the price signals of capitalism um, to reward companies that are behaving more sustainably uh, and drive money to those companies that are behaving in a responsible way, the power of the financial markets is enormous. Uh, money moves at the speed of light. And if it sees an opportunity to reduce risk, 
and find a better rate of return, it will find it instantly through the use of computers. Uh, so what we want to do is we want to help these two entities. We want to help uh, the companies that are doing really well on uh, CSR, and they put out a beautiful report, and we want them to find a way to say, here's what we've done, and, and, and find the missing link between what's material about what they've done and what the analysts want to to understand so they can invest more intelligently for their investors. Think about when you go to buy a refrigerator, how complicated it might be to look at all the different brands and look at all the different features and read about which ones are breaking down in the first couple of years and which one's going to last longer. There's so much information on the Internet, and these poor analysts, they don't have to study which fridge to buy. They have to study which companies to buy. And the amount of information is overwhelming. They need information that's material, and for whatever reason, they're not getting the material uh, understanding from why CSR is a better bet for their uh, portfolio, uh, for their stock picking, uh, than a company that is uh, not terribly interested in, in CSR. Well, Brad, I want to thank you again for your time. I, of course, am going to be there. Uh, it's Thursday, February the 5th in downtown Toronto. If you uh, happen to be in the city, uh, would you like to let people know where they can sign them up if they're interested in, in joining the conversation? Absolutely. The, um, the website is um, the short form for Toronto Sustainability Speaker Series, so it's tsss.ca. Um, and go to the homepage, and then there's a button for upcoming events. You'll see it there, and uh, we'd love to have you join us. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much, and I certainly will uh, we'll see you there as well, Brad. Thanks very much, Darren. Great. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Uh, so, uh, Stefan, uh, coming in the studio here, we're going to go to our, our music break uh, in a minute. I was wondering, uh, A, if you had any any uh, comment on that, uh, just from the sort of cynicism side about that, about um, just, you know, environmentalists that we know who largely just sort of write, just sort of shuffle off this entire entire topic. Um, do you, what, are your, what are your sort of thoughts on that, about whether or not the, you know, environmental activists should be trying to engage with, with giant corporations, or is, or is there a different path uh, forward? And what's your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, well, obviously that exists. Yes, that's a that's a, a bit of, a big part of the of almost any movement that's trying to change uh, change the world for a better place. There's always going to be a certain percentage of people who come at that from a well, this entire system is terrible, so let's do something else entirely. Um, and it's that's been the way of trying to change things forever. Uh, my my thought mostly actually came back to the uh, the conversation that you uh, Kevin and I had last night about what we should talk about in the show today. Uh, and you came up with a, well, let's talk about this very specific piece uh, about how. Uh, big money is making it difficult to talk about climate change by suppressing the idea of carbon taxes through this very specific thing. And then <laughs> and then Kevin posts this link, uh, which is basically, the world is dying. <laughs> I'm sure he'll, 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 he'll flesh that, out, that link out a little more later. Uh, but like that's the constant dichotomy we're facing here, yeah. is one conversation is, how are we going to do something right now to get anything done? And the other side is, we're dying, do something. <laughs> And both are equally valid. The question is what? Yeah. The question is how uh, how do you how do you engage with both conversations in a sane, rational manner? Yeah. Well, and it's the micro versus macro, and I mean, I think it, and it's the thing we we come back to frequently, but it's it's something worth driving home, which is that we need people at all levels engaging in all ways, 
And it's not, I think the moral of the story is that it's not about, is this tactic or that avenue more important or more valid, but we need everybody doing the things that they are. So if you're in the financial industry and, and you're interested in these topics, then we need you. And, and if you're uh, working at uh, Starbucks and you're 17 and, and what, what's capable for you is to engage with a, with a local group like our friends over at Toronto 350, then do that. Right. Just do something, as you famously said a few weeks ago, do something, show up. That was your thing. You said show up is step one and and stuff will happen. So um, uh, just one other word on one other thing as well, before we go to our first music break here as well, uh, was I wanted to pitch really quickly. um, You and I have been uh, working with uh, Dave, your brother, Mm -hmm. uh, to do some really cool uh, work as part of a uh, as part of an animated uh, kind of tutorial, I guess, but um, very uh, designed to be very easy and digestible. Uh, If anyone's familiar with the uh, the story of stuff, we're kind of going after that sort of thing. Uh, and what we want to do is it's going to be a whole long series just sort of talking about the basic concepts that you need to understand, sort of ideology-free, boiled down to just the facts, the science. Here's the basic information you need to know um, to be able to have a really rational and productive discussion about uh, carbon budgets and carbon taxes and what do these things mean? What do we know and what do we not know? Um, and just to just to get everybody on the same page and try and do it in an entertaining and easily uh, digestible uh, way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a couple funny lines you were wrote into the script uh, basically uh, dave's doing the animation you were doing uh, writing uh, yes. most of the script pretty much and, and i'm doing the narration uh so i'm really looking forward to that coming out and, and we should have the first one within maybe say the next week or so yeah for sure be. yeah we're working out one specific technical bug right now and it should be as soon as that's done it's 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 good to go awesome well we will ha- we're gonna have a play well when it's ready we'll play a little sample on the show it's it's not going to work entirely without the animation so i'll probably play like 30 seconds mm-hmm. just to give people a sample uh but i'm really excited that's coming out uh without further ado though uh we're going to go to our first music break uh and we'll be right back uh, to uh, talk with Food Forward and Darcy Higgins. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM.
right, and we are back. I'm Darren Kaster. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, also broadcast nationally on wonderful syndicates across the country uh, and available on the podcast and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. It's really exciting. It's awesome. And we have fun doing it. Yes, we do. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so the next we're going to go to uh, our interview I actually did yesterday afternoon. This was produced uh, in the cover of night uh, on my laptop Ooh. late last uh, late last night so that we could get video as well. So this will be up uh, probably sometime early next week uh, on the YouTube uh, if someone wants to uh, to see Darcy Higgins uh, doing this interview. Uh, also with a little bit of supplementary inter- uh, information Ooh, as well. Not to mention that he, he is actually in the, in the video. He's behind a lovely, lovely velvet curtain. Yes, a velvet red curtain. It's, um, it's beautiful. Because it's it turns out that uh, that's the only place uh, at the, I hadn't produced at CSI Regent Park before, uh, and that's the only place without an echo in that entire mm-hmm. building. Um, so yes, <laughs> it's a beautiful curtain, everybody. You it's pretty. Just, you should watch the video just for the curtain. Yeah, you come for the the Higgins, you stay for the curtain. <laughs> So uh, our first question, so Darcy Higgins, again, of course, is the director and, and co-founder of uh, uh, Food Forward, um, who is a local Toronto group that advocates and writes on sustainability issues, uh, particularly on uh, issues of food policy, obviously. Um, and they do a number of things um, and uh, have a, a few ongoing initiatives. Uh, one of them right now is uh, Food Nation uh, in Toronto. Um, but uh, Darcy uh, talked just in general basically about food systems in general as a general concept. So we use Toronto as an example a few times, but really this is all very, very applicable to, to anywhere. Um, so the first clip that we're going to play, um, I was asking him to speak on the subject of uh, food access. What is the sort of function of what Food Forward does? Why is there a need for it? Uh, and then and then also a little bit about, uh, so access is in where you can buy food, but also food about uh, urban gardening. Uh, so this is Darcy Higgins talking about urban gardening and food access. Uh, in Toronto and in other cities around North America, we have issues of food access, as in uh, the problems that people can't get to the food they need because of the cost of food. People just aren't making enough money to access healthier food, which sometimes costs more. And then in um, their own neighborhood, they might not have access to uh, easy places to buy healthy food. There might be convenience stores or junk food, fast food, but to get fresh local healthy food uh, is often a problem. In Toronto, over half of uh, Torontonians don't live within a kilometer of a grocery store. So it could be quite a hike, especially if you don't have a car. Toronto's cost of housing especially is, is rising uh, quite quickly. Um, and so uh, with, with a number of costs that people have, it's, it's hard to pay that extra amount uh, for good food. A lot of people that are below the poverty line, and that's increasing in the city, um, it becomes hard to to uh, get fresh fresh food, which sometimes costs more. Um, so in uh, neighborhoods which are uh, of lower income, there's a lot of people, especially students, youth, seniors, uh, and others that, uh, that can't afford food. And so that um, creates sometimes easier access to fast food and things like that, which can be uh, quick and cheap to get. Um, it, and it adds uh, to health problems that we see that are growing in the city. I'm talking about how to get to, um, to buy fresh food from farmers markets, from grocery stores, things like that. Um, and in fact, as I mentioned, a lot of people don't have, don't have that, in, especially in the inner suburbs like Scarborough, North York, uh, North Etobicoke. Um, there's a lot of neighborhoods that have been planned that don't have grocery stores nearby, they don't have markets, where in other countries it's sort of normal to have things uh, in the area, to have you go out and buy your fresh food every day. Um, people that move to Canada often find that they don't have what they did before, 
So culturally appropriate food um, and just having something in your neighborhood, especially when you're maybe low income, working a few jobs. I know people that don't really have time to go out, transit a far way to get their uh, groceries. So did a lot of different aspects um, impact the t how food access works and food security in the city um, because of certain planning that had been done, how Toronto's planned. A lot of, there's a more tower neighborhoods, really tall buildings, uh, apartments in Toronto than any other city in North America. So these often group in different areas um, throughout the inner suburbs. And um, often there are not, uh, there are zoning restrictions, there are um, other reasons that prevent bigger grocery stores from being in these neighborhoods. Um, in the past, um, other stores and markets weren't allowed to set up, where downtown you have more density and more availability for that kind of thing. Uh, so planning is one aspect of that. Um, the sort of corporate influence of food, there's only a few corporations that sort of control the seeds and the agricultural uh, supplies for farmers, and then only a few uh, stores, a uh, few corporations that own the grocery stores. So um, they sort of make a lot of the decisions um, about that impact people day to day on where they can get their own food. Toronto, I think, when I, I moved to Toronto from uh, southwestern Ontario, and I found really great energy in the city around uh, growing food in, in the city, um, on balconies and rooftops and community gardens. There's over 200 community gardens already in Toronto. A lot of them are at schools. Some of them are, are in Toronto community housing and apartments and parks. So a lot of people have got quite active in that. Um, here in Regent Park, there's a great history of community gardening. Um, back from the 80s, um, and you see around the old apartment buildings that people are growing food. On a, on a nice day in the summer, you see people of all different backgrounds out um, growing all sorts of vegetables and talking about it. And um, so that's something we really want to encourage because people can uh, do more of that and supply some of their own healthy food when uh, there's maybe not as much control or access. It brings an element of justice to, to the work. So. Um, when uh, planners, um, developers, and uh, organizations are coming in, like in Regent Park with the revitalization here, uh, develop the developers, Daniels in this case, uh, worked after a lot of uh, pressure from residents to keep those community gardens as part of the new plan, um, and other local agencies and planners have worked to um, grow more gardens, uh, rooftops in the new Regent Park and that sort of thing, even on the balconies of the new buildings. I then went on to ask uh, Darcy a little bit more about, um, so we've talked about food access and we talked about uh, urban gardening. Um, so I asked him to elaborate on some of the uh, the roadblocks and opportunities and, and potential issues that come up when uh, the desires of people to grow or access food bump up against bureaucracy. Um, so here's Dar Darcy talking for a couple of minutes about urban politics and, and food policy in, in, in a cityscape. There was a, there was a family in High Park uh, a couple of years back, and they... Uh, they had started a small vegetable garden on their boulevard, and they had a, um, a licensing inspector come in and say that wasn't allowed, and so remove the vegetable garden, uh, or you'll get a fine, or we'll do it. We'll do it for you. So that just happened to be um, something on the books where city staff, because it wasn't explicitly allowed in the legislation to have vegetables um, growing in your front boulevard, um, they said no, you can't do that. So people worked in that case to, together with us and others to change that 
policy. So there's policies like that around uh, the city that prevent things from happening. So a lot of people have energy and having things that enable um, gardens in, in different places. It's also um, can be sometimes a long process or bureaucratic to start a, a community garden in a city park. So um, also the city is a bit understaffed in that level. They have one or two people that support that process, but it can take a, quite a while. So it's all about how do we get the city and, and government involved in uh, not just allowing but supporting these things to uh, happen in the city. With Food Forward, we work a lot on policy change and advocate for changes in policy because at the policy level, we can affect things that will allow many people across the city to do different things. So um, we have a, a plan called Food Nation right now. It's a platform uh, with a few key changes we want to see the city bring about. Um, and in doing that, we're sort of trying to focus on a proactive agenda on food for the city. Um, in the past, uh, and especially in the Ford era, some of the things we we did when we when we when we started up were sort of reactive, so we had to sort of prevent the um, canceling of the urban agriculture program that existed at the city, or um, stop the uh, proposal to cancel the local food, uh, the city purchasing local food as part of its uh, childcare programs. So um, now that we have a new council, we worked during the last election to put a new agenda forward. We had a lot of support with that. And so now it's about sort of implementing those pieces step by step. In the, uh, in the last summer, we worked with Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam um, and uh, a developer, Lantera, and other uh, partners in the neighborhood to start uh, a street food market. And uh, we, had, we had vendors and street food vendors um, and used a space that is going to develop into a condo and a park as well. Um, before that, we were able to access that um, and use it for to support new entrepreneurs in selling um, a lot of times culturally diverse, sustainable local food. Um, so that's where like little partnerships in different communities and having the city on board can really help. Uh, having a councillor on board was great. That's after working for quite a while on trying to change city street food policies, which if you look out around the city, you'll see not as much as uh, we want in diversity uh, of food and there's not too many places to get something, right? Mostly hot dog carts, which have been around for a while. A lot of different policies have sort of prevented that, and we've been working away bit by bit on uh, changing those. Previously, only hot dogs were allowed, actually, to be sold in Toronto streets. So that was actually provincial legislation, which the city also upheld. Um, so that's one of the things that we and others were able to change. Um, so if you want to start a new food cart in Toronto, you can do that, and you can... Uh, you can have some healthy local food. All right, and then the last thing that I asked Darcy Higgins uh, again from Food Forward, if you're just uh, uh, if you're just tuning in, uh, the last thing that I asked him to talk about, of course, was uh, Toronto is uh, it was at one point de I saw an article somewhere uh, de de decrying it the uh, the most diverse city or the the, the 51 percent uh, recent immigrants. Um, so I asked him to comment on on how that and and how that affected um, the 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 situation in Toronto with regards to to food policy because there is so much diversity. So the final clip here that we have for you today is Darcy Higgins from uh, Food Forward talking about uh, food diversity and, and the diversity impact on food uh, in Toronto, but also in Canada in general. Yeah, Toronto's diversity uh, is you know, quite a gift for, gift for the food system that we have because um, a few decades ago, Toronto didn't have much. Uh, you go to a restaurant and have a, a sort of whatever, steak and potatoes, roast beef, 
meal. Um, now you look at the restaurants are so diverse. There's so much potential. There's caterers, street vendors, um, you know, festival vendors, and, and so there's so much um, on offer. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of new Canadians want to start food businesses because uh, people come with great cooking skills, um, especially women from countries around the world, um, and it's a good way to get a foothold and start making some some revenue of your own um, in Toronto. Uh, so it's another another thing we have to work on in terms of how do we get uh, kitchen access because if you're starting a new business, you have to use a commercial kitchen. There's not so many available around the city. Uh, things like that that um, are particular challenges. Um, also working with the, uh, the people with, with different languages, it's a challenge, but it's also a benefit because you might have um, uh, you might be in a community garden where you, where you have a, a vegetable. From your culture, you might use one part of it. You might have a, one name for it. Somebody you're speaking with has another, uh, another name, another use, another recipe. So it sort of enriches the experience of the, the food movement in the city. In, in Toronto, what's worked with us in Food Forward, we've, we're sort of a broader group that tries to bring people together, whether they're working on, say, community gardens or they're working on... Um, protection of rights for farm workers uh, or if they're local farmers, things like this. We have this organization that we try to bring people together um, to learn about uh, the food system and these different pieces so we can create a stronger movement for change and support each other when these issues come up um, in different parts of food. So having sort of an organization that brings people together, we have events called Foodie Drinks, uh, which are sort of monthly opportunities for people to connect. And that's been a really good opportunity. I think a couple other cities have um, copied that sort of model and have their own foodie drink type events. Um, so those are great. Different cities have food policy councils and uh, uh, roundtables with different stakeholders. So getting involved in those um, and seeing what's happening in, in your city is, is excellent. And there's also a national organization called Food Secure Canada. We're a member of that, and they work on these issues nationally nationally and uh, try to get federal policy changed and now with the an election coming up this year um, and we've had the the conservatives for a few years not doing much on the food file so we have a good opportunity to think about the issue and see what we can do nationally food forward is uh, always looking for people to get involved uh, our food nation campaign uh, which I'd mentioned is, is uh, going strong now into uh, this year, we have an opportunity to make significant changes. So our website, foodnationto.com, uh, you can click on and endorse the Food Nation campaign and then offer to volunteer or donate to support it. Uh, so that's a great way to, to sort of get connected. Uh, and we're meeting regularly and doing some great strategy on that. And pushfoodforward.com is our main website, and there's a lot of resources on there um, <coughs> for how to get involved and how to you know create your own food project in your neighborhood, too. All right. So, again, that was uh, Darcy Higgins, the director and founder of Food Forward here in Toronto. Uh, if you are in Toronto and you want to get involved with uh, any of their general stuff, as he was just saying there, you can go to pushfoodforward.com uh, as well. But if you're not in Toronto, he was, I, I should also add that uh, both him and, and Vanessa were very, very helpful whenever I, I contacted them. Uh, and I think so if you're if you're in a different city and you just want to sort of want to maybe some advice about how to start something like that or maybe how to connect with some local groups, uh, I would go ahead and, and contact them as well. You can get uh, to them through their contact us information.
information. I'm, I'm sure they would be more than happy to give you a hand uh, finding resources, information, or, or, or directly getting involved. Uh, we're going to go to our second and uh, final uh, for the show, Music Break, here in just a moment before we come back for our punditry section. Uh, but Neil, our tech, could you please tell us what the, the first song that we, uh, that we did and what we're going to be listening to now? Yeah, Darren, we, uh, we're going coast to coast, first starting with Zach Ibrahim, um, song called Heartbeat. She's from uh, B.C., and now we're going to, our second music break is going to be by Old Man Ludica from the Maritimes, a song called Baby, We'd Be Rich. Awesome. And Neil has pick, been picking the music every single week, as uh, we've had a few compliments on the music. So well done, Neil. Thanks so much for that. Uh, so we'll be right back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT. We'll be right back in a moment. <laughs> Singing for my supper, celebrating Mr. Noodles, watching other cats walk along a windowsill with a mattress on the floor and her records in the cartons, dreaming of the country, running from the bills. If reading books was money, if spinning records was investing. Drinking was consulting, baby, we'd be rich. Going on a picnic, rolling in the grass now. The agent miracle and wonder, we're just trying to get our kicks. I would spend my last ten dollars, buy us with tequilas, leave the pack up and waiting. No minutes on my phone. was investing if drinking was consulting baby we'd be rich if dreaming made us money if singing was investing if smoking it was saving are back here in the home stretch of the Green Majority this week uh, here at CIUT 89.5, or you might be listening to us on one of our wonderful and very much appreciated national syndicates, uh, or you could be listening uh, on the podcast, which you can link to if you're listening on the radio and you'd like to access the podcast. All that information is uh, now very cleanly displayed at the very top of the website at greenmajority.ca, where you can also uh, sign up. We have uh, now a once a month uh, 
email that we send out. We only send out once a month, so we don't want to pester anybody. Um, but just to, as a way, if you uh, if you don't always have an opportunity to, to listen into the show, or maybe you listen to the radio show and you uh, uh, don't spend a ton of time on YouTube, but you want to know when we do put stuff out, uh, especially now, Stefan, that we're producing a lot less videos and putting a lot more time into them. And so the, mm. the quality, now that we have a good idea of what we're doing, <laughs> the, uh, the, the child phase is, has worn off. Um, they're, they're much higher quality and they're coming out a little bit uh, more infrequently, which I, which I think is good. And we've been putting out some really cool stuff recently. So if you want to uh, get just one email a month or a reminder, just a listing, basically all of the different things, it puts links to all the different radio show uh, posts, uh, as well as uh, any video content that we might have put out that month as well. You can do that right at greenmajority.ca, right on the homepage. There's a big button that just says email updates or something like that. I think it says email something mm-hmm. right on the homepage as well. And then you'll you'll just get an email a month with, uh, with links to all the stuff that we've done since the previous newsletter. Uh, um, so that's something you can uh, you can do as well. You can also just go straight to the YouTube channel and subscribe there if you like. Um, the uh, final stretch here now is uh, um, we've got a we've got a full twenty minutes for once, which is great. I I, uh, I feel like we we're frequently rushed uh, here on the show, so we've uh, we've got a little bit of uh, uh, the appropriate amount of time, which mm-hmm. I almost called extra time. Um, but uh, Kevin, we were having a discussion yesterday about a few different news items uh, to discuss, and, and Stefan, you prompted us a little bit uh, earlier. Um, about uh, a variety of issues, but I was most interested in, in hearing uh, first, uh, Kevin, if you just wanted to lead us in a little bit about what the uh, planetary boundaries, was it five of nine planetary limits that we've now passed? Uh, hi, everyone. Um, uh, it, um, I actually can't hear anything in my headphones. My life? You guys can hear me okay? I can't. Okay, yes. okay. We're good to go then. Uh, it might just be my toque. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it, the... Um, uh, it's four of nine planetary boundaries. If you if you uh, if you go to the Guardian UK and just Google on their website for articles about planetary boundaries, you'll find you'll find. I think I think all of most of the articles I've seen have been a repackaging of that original, or just a basically a reposting of that original. And uh, it's a study of uh, it. It divides um, sort of what what we now often call ecological services on the planet into like nine categories. Uh, and uh, I've got a quote, and, and and of those nine categories, we have we have exceeded the like roughly the carrying capacity of four of them. And these are like non-trivial categories. We're talking about things that you know matter fundamentally to sustaining life on Earth, including our own. Um, so here's here's a, okay. So two, this is a quote from the article. Okay, here's a quote from the article. Humans are eating away at our own life support systems at a rate unseen in the past ten thousand years by degrading. Uh, land and freshwater systems, emitting greenhouse gases and releasing vast amounts of agricultural chemicals into the environment. Um, skipping ahead, uh, of nine worldwide processes that underpin life on Earth, four have exceeded so-called safe levels. And the four they identify are human-driven climate change, loss of biodiversity integrity, land system change, and the the uh, the third the one the final one the fourth one is the high level uh, high levels of both phosphorus and nitrogen flowing into the oceans due to fertilizer use. And I just want to make a comment about this. Uh, if you notice, two of the four boundaries that we have exceeded involve uh, trafficking in naturally occurring substances: carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus. So even even where we are trafficking, even where humans are trafficking only. In naturally occurring substances, in this case, elements. Well, I don't know, phosphorus, phosphorus, and element. I can't remember. Um, but even when we're trafficking only in naturally occurring substances, we are trafficking in them to such an extent that we are fundamentally altering the chemistry and the functioning of the ecosphere. 
that and that's just stuff that naturally occurs. <laughs> so you know, add to this the certainly trillions of tons of uh, synthetic chemicals that we produce every single year that have never existed before in nature. Uh, the fact that even now those little those little plastic single serving coffee cups that go into those new coffee machines. Even in the couple of years since those have come into existence, that we have produced so many of those tiny little plastic cups, you could now circle the globe with them several times over. That's just one little tiny plastic cup in one little consumer product. This is the thing. We just don't really, like collectively, our footprints don't seem very big. But we're just, you know, or no, so individually, our footprints don't seem very big. But collectively, we are a monster now. Collectively, our impact on Earth is on the scale of a supervolcano eruption or an asteroid strike. And this is something we just have to wrap our heads around. And that's why I want to make that point. Like even where we're even where we're emitting carbon dioxide, carbon or you know, carbon dioxide, which, you know, is just we didn't invent carbon, it was already here. We're just moving it around. We didn't invent nitrogen, it was already here. We're just moving it around. We didn't invent phosphorus either. It was also already here. We're just moving it around. But we are moving these things around to such an extent that we're derailing the, the natural functioning of the ecosphere. And I just think that's worth noticing because that, you know, that's, that, that's in, in, every, in every other thing we're doing, we're trafficking in trillions of tons of things that actually never existed before in nature. So you, you have to assume we can expect consequences from that as well. Yeah, the um, I'm I'm trying to uh, find a, a tweet somebody sent to me the other day because they um, they uh, were um, uh, promoting a, a documentary that I that I had commented on and, and retweeted. And I'm just going to buy my uh, buy myself a second to find it um, here. Um, but it was about uh, uh, the oceans. Uh, and I know that Kevin, over the, the over the years of of doing the show, that's been one of uh, your points that you kind of like to be, uh, keep bringing us back to when uh, when I've given you an opportunity to just sort of like you know have a have the last ten minutes to talk about whatever you'd like. It's it's something that we that we don't talk about very often in general, and especially now that climate change and of course it is the the quintessential environmental concern of our day. Uh, but there's also that other one, right? There's the slow ticking uh, you know death from a thousand cuts, which is the the polluting of our oceans, and and one. One of the things that that I um, um, thought about the documentary, I didn't watch all of it, but I watched most of it. And it was just about plastic pollution and in, in, in the oceans. Was was this simple thing that I already knew as a fact that it just so easily slips out of your mind, even for people like us that spend a disproportionate amount of our time looking at this sort of thing, uh, which was just the simple fact that like seventy something percent of the planet's surface is covered by water. And it was like, and we never ever think about it, right? And they were talking about the uh, the plastic. Um, uh, the quote unquote uh, what was it a plastic island or the 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 garbage the garbage patch the plastic patch in in the ocean and they were talking about and, there's and, there's at least five yeah there's one big one when people talk about like the Pacific garbage patch it's one particular gyre of plastic but there's 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 four there's for sure for sure there's about four others and the problem is not just those big collections of visible plastic it's the it's the the uncountable zillions of tiny little particles of plastic because the plastic we dump into the oceans, it doesn't biodegrade, it photodegrades, it essentially it disintegrates into tiny little pl- particles that are still plastic. And so when we see these big gyres of plastic in the ocean, we go, oh, look at all that garbage. But it's like, okay, but all the stuff that's already disintegrated into these tiny little particles is now throughout all the oceans. We can find these particles in, in the oceans of Antarctica. Uh, and 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 so so yeah so even even to say like the garbage patch there's more than one 
And in fact, the garbage, the, the pollution we're talking about is now th- spread throughout the oceans. This is a huge, huge problem. Yeah. And w- w- one of the things that they were, they were sh- sort of showing with that, though, is that people think of like, oh, a patch, like a, a, one of the guys they were interviewing was like, oh, a patch, like a, like a pumpkin patch. Like people think of it as like maybe like a little island, like it's all clumped together. But they're like, you, you have to, it, it sort of is when you're looking at it from a planetary scale. But from our scale, it's, it's actually much more accurate to describe it as a soup um, because it's just this in, Fast size, basically, you know, the size of a good chunk of, of North America. That's it's you know it's it's not solid. You could you can dip your hand in and you can still see through it, sort of. Um, but it's these fine fine little particulate matters, and it covers hundreds of kilometers of ocean. And then the, and it's one of those things where they go and they say, okay, so it's you know it's this big and and it's basically and it's literally full. You can't move in any direction at any time without touching plastic. And then they add that oh, and at least at least fifty percent of it is on the bottom as well. And it's just, it's the sort of thing where, you know, it's, I think it's one of, one of the, brings us back to it, yet another reminder of one of the many ways in which uh, humans just have a really difficult time. Like in, in a way, I almost want to cut us some, some slack and say, our brains are not designed to interact with volumes and concepts of this scale. A lot of mathematicians will, will talk about um, the difficulty of, of large numbers because our, our brains have evolved, you know, on a savanna for uh, counting, oh, there's two predators, or I have three, you know, family members. There, we don't our brains are not designed to really comprehend, or at least they're not specifically designed to comprehend numbers like, you know, 10 to the 23rd power and stuff. We don't, we don't really, are, we're not able to visualize that. And, and I think that's a significant uh, part of the problem. I don't know if you, you had any uh, comment on that, Stefan. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I, was, I was just, I, my first thought is I was actually reading a, uh, a piece yesterday, I think it was, about, about chess and about how there are more moves in chess possible from the beginning of the game than there are particles in our known universe. There's, okay. In fact, the number that you would have to multiply the number of particles in the universe to get to the number of potential chess games is also a mind-boggling number. Like it's not just that it exceeds the number of particles in the universe, but by, but by, by an astonishing, also incomprehensible amount. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it got to me this point where I was just I was, like, once you see those numbers, it's like this means absolutely nothing. And like, if you show me a million of something and ask me how many it is, I could guess anywhere from probably ten thousand to. Three trillion. Well, the Greeks, the Greeks had it. The Greeks had this right. They counted to ten thousand, and then anything bigger than ten thousand was called a myriad. They just stopped. (laughs) That was it. They said, "Okay, we don't need any numbers bigger than this." The other thing too is, if you we talk about billions of tons of CO two all the time, a billion seconds is like thirty two years, just to give you an idea of how big a billion is. But but you're right. Yeah, we just don't we don't comprehend these things very well. That's why I say we have to wrap our heads around the fact that we're huge collectively. Mm. We just have to accept the fact that we are equivalent now to an asteroid strike on this planet or a supervolcano eruption. And just, like, stop thinking about, oh, it's just me and my car or me and my, you know, garbage bag that goes out once a week. It's like, yeah, it is. But there's just so many of us now. We have to – we just have to accept the size of our collective footprint. I really I really like the idea of the name Human Asteroid Strike for, like, a for a metal band. So if you're out there, <laughs> consider that. Yeah. Uh, and I just uh, – the, the document I just found it there is uh, – it's called Inside the Garbage of the World. Uh, it's on YouTube. And I actually just tweeted out the link. So if you're curious at all about that, you can just uh, go to at Green Majority uh, on uh, on Twitter, and you can see the link there if you're interested in taking a look. It's, uh, it's a little bit over uh, an hour uh, and, uh, and 10 minutes, and uh, I'd recommend taking a look. There's some really good uh, interviews uh, in there as well as uh, some really stunning visuals uh, as well. So you can go ahead and take a look at that. Uh, did, was there uh, one of the two other ones, uh, Kevin, you wanted to, to segue to? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to just throw to one. Uh, on the topic of being in sort of planetary danger, there's a there's a, a famous organization called uh, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. It's a group that's been in existence since uh, the that was formed by scientists from the Manhattan Project, 
who were uh, alarmed by the genie they had just let out of the bottle. And ever since, like, it's 1945 now since they came into existence, they've, they've been using, among, among other things, this notion of a doomsday clock to say how close we are to, you know, planetary midnight. And recently they just advanced the clock. It used to be seven minutes to midnight, and then it went to five minutes to midnight. And now just recently, um, and in recent years, they, they've, they focused on the threat of nuclear weaponry, which is, which is entirely prevalent today, whether people are still aware of that or not. But they, in recent years, they've been talking about climate change and saying, look, this is, this is part of what's inching us towards midnight. And so with an acknowledgement of both uh, the ongoing danger of uh, nuclear uh, arsenals and worsening climate change that we just don't seem to give a damn about, they have advanced the clock by, by two minutes now, and it's now three minutes to midnight. And this, this, this article is so topical. If you just Google the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, you'll, you'll find, uh, you'll find you know, their, their latest news release about why they have... Uh, uh, done what they've done and why they've done this. They had a press conference about advancing the doomsday clock by two minutes. Uh, and the, the last thing we talked about, uh, we talked last week about, um, was it last week? Uh, about, God, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the problem with CBC about, about their, on, their journalists who are now sort of journalists come celebrities. Yes, Andrew uh, Majavico was on last week. Yeah, week's okay, show. that was last week. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about their, the, these, this problem that they've been accepting paid. Uh, paid uh, paid speaking paid fee, pay, uh, fees to give speak, speaking fees. Oh Lord, help me! <laughs> They've been accepting speaking fees from corporations, corporations that they not only cover as journalists, but corporations that also lobby governments. And in the case of Amanda Lang, uh, she seems to have not only accepted speaking fees from some of these corporations, but then had various people on her show that she's. Uh, if you watch the clips, it's the, not only has she not admitted that there's a financial sort of tie between her and her guests, but some of these pieces seem to be genuine PR for the guests, not mm. interviews or journalism at all, but kind of like promotional vehicles for people that she might have a, a financial obligation to. Um, I think the kindest you could possibly be was that she was lobbying softballs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she, I was, I almost said that. Uh, <laughs> so you know, it was it was people like Andrew Mitrovica and uh, um, maybe Jesse. Was it Jesse Brown as well? Uh, who who were writing about this? And uh, um, uh, and it, you know, I, I do remember reading a blog post from uh, uh, Jennifer McGuire. I couldn't remember her title last week, but she and it's because it's long. She is the editor in chief and general manager of CBC News and Centers. <laughs> Um, and she wrote, she addressed those, these, uh, these, you know, sort of these kind of like quote unquote blogosphere complaints about, about their, their practices. And she kind of, she was very dismissive. And then later she, she really retaliated against Lyndon McGuire, uh, McIntyre, uh, when he, uh, wrapped up his, uh, stint with, uh, the fifth estate and he wrote kind of an op-ed sort of thing that was published in the, the Globe and Mail talking about the toxic culture of celebrity at CBC, which earned him that someone tried to cancel, Jennifer McGuire tried to actually cancel his last interview, uh, which, you know, kind of proves the point. Don't talk out about, you know, not only, don't talk out about our celebrities, don't diss our culture, don't, uh, you know, it just kind of proved the point that he's getting at is that there's, 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 kind of some, you know, institutional ossification going on here. And anyway, so it just in the start today, I noticed uh, just before I came to the show, uh, this the, appears all of a sudden that they have. So what they what they did was they brought in new guidelines about speaking fees. But weirdly, they grandfathered in some existing engagements that journalists like Amanda Lang had. And they said, well, we've put in these new guidelines, but, you know, they already made these arrangements. It's a done deal. We're going to let these go ahead, even though they now technically contradict our guidelines. So it seems that they've had a change of opinion about that now and said, we're just canceling 
paid speaking fees. End of story. Mm. Uh, which is which is fine. And this is from Jennifer McGuire, uh, who who admittedly was trying to kind of poo poo this when it first came to light. She was trying to poo poo this whole problem. Um, anyway, I just was really struck by uh, a comment that she's quoted in the Star as saying. Um, the, the paid activity, just by virtue of being paid, was creating challenges in terms of our reputation. <laughs> I mean, really. Uh, so the idea was just to stop that from being the conversation and push our journalistic policies even further. It was creating a perception that we didn't think is right for our brand. <laughs> I just want to say, I doubt that she's listening, but uh, that's kind of your problem, Ms. McGuire, is that you're not a brand. And if you think of yourself as a brand, that's that's just part of what's wrong with your mentality here. The, the CBC is a brand. But the fact is that you're thinking about this in terms of, the, of a brand as opposed to a vital public institution that is necessary to the proper functioning of our democracy. That's that's you're missing the point. Now, that public institution doesn't have to be the CBC. It, it could be some other, you know, branded entity. But the thing is, is that we need a, a public broadcaster, an arm's length public broadcaster, free from political inf- influence as, as, to, the, to the extent that that's possible, certainly free from corporate and moneyed influence, and that should be eminently possible. We need that, whether it is the CBC, which maybe has run its course <laughs> or maybe has become like a, you know, toxic now. Who knows? I'm just saying. It doesn't have to be the CBC. So if you're worried about your brand as opposed to worried, being worried about being uh, a, a, a public broadcaster that is above reproach and that, that, has, that is not just impartial but has the appearance of impartiality, then I would say you're missing the point. And, and worrying about your brand is, is just the, the notion that you are a brand is part of the problem. Yeah, I, I have two quick points about that. And then, uh, Stefan, if you wanted to, to jump in. But one of them was that just the way the, the very beginning of what you were reading there um, sounded very much like sometimes those forced apologies when like rich people or celebrities uh, get caught doing something they shouldn't have. And they come out and say, you know, I'm really sorry if I offended anyone. And the underline is, <laughs> I'm sorry if you were offended, not I'm sorry I did it. It's the media minute. You come out, you do your time and you wait until the news cycle buries you under the next latest round of sensationalism. Season yeah. three. Prison Break comes out next week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, if you missed last week's show, there's that's a reference to last week's show. Uh, so that was one thing, but it really like it feels it it, it feels like it, it was uh, not. I mean, intentionally not as in they're like, aha, we'll sneak this one by them. But it 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 sort of shows her hand or their hand, depending on how far you want to say you know she was coached to to use that specific language. But it, it doesn't seem to be to me to be an accident. It seems to me to be a product of exactly what you're saying. In fact, she was she was verifying what you were what you were saying about it, which was they're not sorry it was the case they're so, they're sorry about the optics it created like she pretty much said that and yeah, that's it's, horrifying. it doesn't fit our brand yeah, yeah the, exactly. the problem is not we need, that, to, we need to repackage this you know the problem isn't what we're doing it's the people's opinion of what we're doing well Stefan had like i think the line of the week was it last week oh lord the memory well, Stefan has the line of the week every week yeah pretty much <laughs> that's yeah. pretty much his job on the show it was it was <laughs> or it was the week before where you said you know uh, 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 governments are business and, and businesses are nations or something along the lines. Like, this is like, and, and it's true. We've got this notion now that everything's a business and everything's a brand. And, and it's like, in this particular case, it's like, no, sorry. We just, we, 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 we kind of, we're losing sight of the fact that there's a, of like a previous real, a previous non-branded, non-corporatized reality. 
Yeah, that's well. That's exactly what I was going to actually get into for for my little bits. I'm going to jump in right now. Um, which is that it, this is a thing that's now. It's not just the CBC. It's all of government. Right now, now of government. F- the Harper government. <laughs> uh, I, TM. The, yeah, <laughs> trademark. Um, just because, like, almost all of government now is seen as if you do something. Like, it, the point of government now is almost no longer to do an actual good job. And maybe it never was a good job. It was to be perceived like you're good, doing a good job. The point of the Canadian government now is their goal is to brand Canada as successful, not to be a successfully functioning nation. You know, to be, if you want to be a successfully functioning nation, you don't know, maybe have a long-form census. Uh, there's even more information about how that's causing all these sorts of problems already. Um, and, it's, and it's funny because like, it, it sort of underlines the whenever – whenever everyone talks about how you have to treat uh, government like a business, my question is always, okay, so what is this business's goal? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, you want to treat government like a business, so cut here, cut there, cut there. If that's the goal, what is, what is this business selling to people? Is it is it a decent life, or is it just, we are your overlords, and that is all you're paying us to do, and therefore we can cut every social service? It's it's selling, it's cyclical. It's it's they're, What they're selling is the product of satisfaction that they're doing a good job. <laughs> exactly. Which, it, which doesn't make sense. Well, but that might be the line of this week. <laughs> <laughs> I get one for once? Nice. Yeah, that was good. Um, <laughs> the, the, just, that, just that idea that, um, that like, public the, the public institutions should can't be treated like businesses because that's their goal isn't to make money but constantly in every single public service like we had the whole conversation about the postal service recently uh, about how the, the idea to save the postal service or to, was to cut the profitable parts privatize them and then give government even the less profitable parts of the postal service yeah. like th- these are the idea of co- the idea of just we're going to take less of your money is not a successful business model like if amazon went out and said you know what we're going to do guys to we're we're gonna we're gonna actually lower the amount of books how much these books cost by not delivering them to you. Yeah, and it's just a functioning to, business. Yeah, just to squeeze something in there at the last second. Uh, yeah, yes, I agree with absolutely everything. I just want to add a small qualifier, which is which is uh, which, which is the notion that you know people say we need we need business people in government because because of all the billion multi billion dollar boondoggles like the gun registry, where somehow some fool has not noticed that we've already hemorrhaged a hundred million dollars and then gone on to hemorrhage nine hundred million more. Right. So people say, well, we need business people. And to that extent, yes, you need sound fundamentals to manage a budget and run a department. But but that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And it, the goal, while, while you do need some of those sensibilities when managing a lot of money, you don't the goal is not to turn government into a business. Yeah. Well, I think we'll close on the uh, on the concept that uh, the business model here is that we're selling uh, factual information. And that's why we're volunteers. <laughs> <laughs>